You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from National Fertility Center. And today I'm joined with my lively and lovely and friendly co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. So Abby, as you were saying that, you're saying lively and lovely. And I immediately started going through, well, what happens if you put the other values in? Uh, other value, the, 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 I bowels? talk. Uh, bowels, thank you. Um, adult words, 101. Other vowels in like, Leavely or Louvely and Lavely and like no none of that work. <laughs> I couldn't think of a third L word right off the top of my you know brain, so I had to throw something else in there. But yeah, word nerd. We are nerds, <laughs> yes. So Carrie, you were talking earlier, and you were talking about a phrase that I think your mom told you that drove you crazy. And we we thought, what are some crazy things that our moms told us? Yeah. So this is, I always find this fascinating to ask because if you're sitting at a, a, you know, a dinner table full of random people and you throw this question out, the responses you get are just all over the map. And, and it's, you know, what are the phrases or the things that your parents or your grandparents came out with that they would say all the time as a kid that now have stuck with you as, as an adult. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, words of wisdom that you live by. It can be the the stupid and mundane and all of those things. But but I, you know, I am curious, what are the things that one parent or the other has said or grandparent or whomever from your childhood that sticks in your brain now? Like I said, doesn't have to be useful, doesn't have to be, you know, the sage advice, but just like, what is the thing that drove you nuts as a kid that is still in your brain today? You know, it's funny. It's like when you said that, all these things are like popping through my mind. So I'll give homage to my dad and my mom. So my dad was a politician and people would sometimes, as politicians know, people can say really bad things about you. And my dad was always, you know, it was like water off his back. No, he, you know, he could take all kinds of criticism and he would just kill people with kindness. And so he would say his favorite saying was, you can get more flies with honey than with vinegar. So that was one that makes me think of my dad. And then my mom, and she was not like a prissy person or, but she, but for some reason, it always sticks out in my mind when I'm getting dressed for something. I'm like, okay, it's better to be overdressed than underdressed. So I always <laughs> like overdress a little bit. So those are, those are my two that I remember the most from my parents. <laughs> what about you, Susan? So there was a phrase that my mom would use when she would come to wake me up that would just automatically wake me up in a bad mood. <laughs> but in, 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 in all honesty, I'm also the person that like, I couldn't just have like any alarm clock. There were certain alarm clock noises. <laughs> <laughs> that would annoy me when I woke up. And so it'd be like, I would test out alarm clocks because like certain buzzers, like, you know, it was back in the days where you didn't have like all your ringers on your iPhone to yeah. be your wake up or, you know, as I got older and I got, you know, a clock radio, that was like the greatest thing. Cause then I could wake up to music and not a buzzer. <laughs> but my mom had the saying it's stirring time. I don't know what it is about it. Like just verbalizing oh. it myself. Like it makes 
it it makes like my neck muscles like contract me saying it much less like when <laughs> I was trying to wake up and I don't know what it is about it. And it wasn't like it, she didn't mean it. Like that was just her little saying. And finally I got to an age that I was like, mom, please don't say that. I'm like, it just, I wake up and I'm in a bad mood as soon as I hear it. I don't know why. I thought your mom would walk in singing, wake up little Susie or something. That's what I would have done. (laughs) That just makes me think of like taking a big wooden spoon and opening up your, like the top of your head, putting your brain and stirring it around (laughs) and then putting your brain, like putting your head back on. It's almost kind of disturbing when you put it that way, Carrie. That like made it even worse. Thanks. (laughs) I'm here for you. Now that I've put it out for the world to know what annoys the absolute daylights out of me. (laughs) (laughs) So Carrie, what's your annoying thing that your parents said to you or your not so annoying thing that your parents said to you that you remember? So the thing that for whatever reason has stuck out into, that has stuck in my brain is my dad would always say as he was spelling our last name for someone or trying to tell them how to pronounce it. He's like, it's obedient without the O. Ah, that's a good, I like that. And I hated it as a kid because I would hear all the time, you know, oh, is your middle name Olivia or is your middle name Olive or, you know, Ophelia or some, some O or, you know, don't be disobedient and it used to drive uh-huh. me nuts. And now I find that as I have to spell my name for people that, obedient without the O is the fastest way to get them there because, and and I always know when a telemarketer is, is calling, like back in the days before cell phones and caller ID on absolutely everything, you know, someone would call and they would say, oh, can we, can we talk with, uh, you know, Mr. Ms. Bedidian? Um, <laughs> and they, they would just fall over the word. And it's not, it, it's not a common last name, but it's also not crazily obscure. Like there's the appropriate val. Um, but in reality, Carrie, it's missing an A. Bedient should be B-E-A-D. It's bedient. It's it's from the Dutch word to serve, which is B-E-N. And so that's what used to drive me absolutely bonkers. And now I find myself using it on a regular basis. Interesting. The apple doesn't too fall, far, too fall from the tree, right? <laughs> too far from the tree, I can't talk. My dad used to talk in 50-minute segments. And because uh, he was a professor and, you know, I am, I'm not quite that long-winded, but, you know, <laughs> I, I'm getting there. Yeah. Well, very good. So question of the day. Carrie's got our question of the day. Okay. So this patient writes, my wife and I are starting reciprocal IVF. My wife's getting ready for the harvest of eggs and we plan to implant in the, the patient who's writing in September if all goes to plan. Um, I'm still breastfeeding our first son, 20 months old, and I've had my period for the last five months regularly. Our doctor recommended ceasing to breastfeed for three months prior to implant. What do y'all recommend? I have plenty of friends without fertility challenges that have gotten pregnant while breastfeeding and continue to breastfeed during pregnancy. So what do you think? Breastfeeding, yay or nay? So to me, there's a difference between getting spontaneously pregnant Mm -hmm. and continuing to breastfeed versus if you're doing kind of a standard frozen embryo transfer cycle where you're taking estrogen and progesterone, okay? Um, We know that if you're taking estrogen and progesterone, that those hormones are going to be expressed in your breast milk and generally speaking, it's probably better for a small child not to necessarily be exposed to those. And so I think that's kind of where most of that's coming from. Um, Realistically, if your child is, I don't remember, you said something 20 something months. 20 months. Yeah. I mean, realistically, your prolactin level, which they can check with a blood test is probably normal by now. Um, 
I mean, you can always check that. We know that high prolactin levels can potentially decrease the chances of successful pregnancy. If you really, really felt strongly about continuing, um, depending on what types of protocols your doctor does, um, maybe some sort of natural cycle transfer, but I would want to make sure that your doctor is comfortable and does those on a regular basis to make sure you're getting kind of the success rate that you're expecting. You know, when people come in and they're like, you know, I want to do this, this, and this, and it's not what I normally do. You know, it's not that I'm necessarily not going to, you know, work with somebody's desires to do things a specific way, but I also want them to know that when I sit there and I quote you success rates, that's based on doing it my way, not necessarily Mm -hmm. your way. Mm -hmm. And so those, those are things that kind of pop into my mind. Well, and I think the other factor too is, you know, we all want you to get pregnant. I mean, you're spending a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort. And, you know, it's there's certain things we just don't really know for sure. We don't know for sure that exposure to prolactin may cause issues. We don't know if it will negatively affect implantation. You know, probably not, but we don't know. And so, you know, I think it goes to everybody wants to optimize everything that we possibly can control that we think may optimize your outcome. And so I think, you know, I that, I kind of tell my patients the same thing. I recommend that they stop breastfeeding. Um, and, you know, I know breastfeeding is a great thing. I did it with both of my kids. But, you know, beyond about a year, um, I think pediatricians say that, you know, it's it's great thing to do, but it probably is not as beneficial for the child after the first year of life. So from a health standpoint, you know, there's probably not a lot of big positives to it for the child. But, you know, I realize that it's a good thing for bonding. And so that would be my thought is just that I think it would you know, we want to do everything we can to optimize outcomes. And I think that's one thing that may potentially optimize outcome. From a perspective of reducing stress, the estrogen that we typically give during a planned implantation cycle um, can inhibit that prolactin. And so whether you want to or not, your your breast milk supply may just shut off. And that is oftentimes extremely stressful um, because if mom and baby are both planning to wean off and and it's a it's a mutual decision that's great when it happens without that planning then both mom and kid can get really stressed out about it and you know kids adapt to to whatever but they're vocal and at 20 months that kid's got a pair of lungs on on him or her and so if he does not approve of this message <laughs> he will let you know and as you're going through an implantation cycle, you you want to be able to sleep. You don't want that kid to be screaming high holy murder because they want a 3 a.m. snack or or even just a, a pre-bedtime snack and that bonding. So I always think if you can control that and taper it down in the way that you and your child are both pretty calm about it, that makes the most sense to me because you really don't need something extra that's that can be very stressful. Sometimes the weaning is really easy, no big deal, but sometimes it can be very stressful. And so making that decision where you get to make that is I think preferable to those hormones making it for you. All right. So today our topic is intrauterine insemination 101 or for short IUI 101. So, and we've done some episodes on this before, but for some of our listeners that are newer, we kind of wanted to kind of go back through some of the details of what's involved with an IUI. So Susan, why don't you start us out and just tell us what is an IUI? Right. So IUI is actually a very specific part of a cycle that we're trying to help you achieve pregnancy where we um, 
have a male partner, or if you're using donor sperm, um, sperm from either donor or sperm bank, um, we take the sperm, we spin the sperm down, we get it down to a very small volume, but high concentration. And at a very specific point in your cycle, place a tiny little catheter inside the uterus, gently inject the sperm. And then typically we let you rest there for a little time period that may vary from office to office. And that in a nutshell is what the actual IUI is. Now, the purpose of the IUI is to get more good sperm where they need to be when they need to be there. So Carrie, why would somebody want to do that if say their partner had a good count? So a good count can be relative. Um, if someone has a account that is, you know, phenomenal, they've got just huge numbers of sperm, high percentages are moving to all, all eyeballs looking at it. It looks totally normal. Um, IUI can be one of the starting procedures to do on a couple that has unexplained infertility. So some people may, may choose to do it for that reason. Um, there are other people who choose to do it because the sperm count is, is high enough to to do the IUI, but it's not really high enough to necessarily depend on the sperm finding the egg if you let it all happen naturally. And so when we're doing that, that prep process that Susan was talking about, we're looking in most cases for a sperm count that is about 5 million total modal count or greater. And so if you have a sperm count where, you know, for, for ease of numbers, 50% are moving and 50% are not, then if you only have 10 million sperm, you know that 5 million right off the bat are not swimming and there's a decent chance that 5 million are. And so that's something where you would say, okay, there's a reasonable chance that if we put this sperm closer to the egg, that it's going to have a better shot at making magic happen than if we just let this try and happen without any intervention at all. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why couples want to do IUI because it's it's a fairly simple treatment um, addressing a, a specific problem. So Susan, is it expensive to do IUI? In the grand scheme of fertility treatments, it's actually one of the least expensive things to try. So, you know, when people start thinking about fertility treatments, they they see ginormous dollar signs. And, and the reality <laughs> is that you know that's true some of the time, right? <laughs> there, there there are some of our treatments that do cost you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars, sometimes even more, depending on you know what's involved. IUI is not one of those things. Um, you know, an IUI prep, it, depending on clinic to clinic, part of the country to part of the country, is probably going to run around three to five hundred dollars. And so, it is a cost, um, but it's not you know twenty thousand dollar cost. And kind of along the, the realm of what Carrie was talking about earlier is that when, when human heterosexual couples have intercourse, most sperm are lost in the vagina. Most of the sperm don't actually make it up past the cervix, which is like the first major barrier. So what we're trying to do is, is bypass that barrier so that there's a higher concentration of sperm that actually still have to swim kind of like up the uterus, up the fallopian tube to where the egg is, okay? So a lot of times people are, are nervous about, oh, I don't want anything like making something happen. And at least from my perspective, I really don't think I'm making something happen. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kind of like 
pushing it through the door a little bit. <laughs> Gentle <laughs> nudge in the right direction. So Carrie, how do you figure out when the right time is to do an IUI? Because timing seems to be important if we only have one shot at it. Yeah, timing is everything. Um, so typically what we do, by the time someone has gotten to an IUI in the office, you can do ovulation predictor kits to help you figure out when to do it. And typically we would do it the day after an ovulation predictor kit turns positive. Um, I would say for many of us, by the time you're doing an IUI, we're trying to do as many interventions as we can to get you pregnant. And relying on an ovulation predictor kit oftentimes results in frustration for everybody because when you're looking... What do these lines say? Exactly. Like, is this the same blue? Is this too light? Is this too dark? Did I miss it? Is it, you know, it's been the same... Did my egg pop out immediately when I saw this blue line? Uh Uh-huh. Like, it just... They, those ovulation predictor kits are great when you're trying to do it at home. By the time you get to us, like we got technology to help with that. Please let us help you with that. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we'll typically do is we'll do an ultrasound so that we know that the egg is likely to be mature. Um, also that there's not too many of them because we want you to have a baby, not a basketball team. And we will give you a trigger medication. And so we'll give that trigger shot. We'll tell you to take it. Okay. Take it sometime in, you know, this evening. And then two days later, we're going to do the IUI usually sometime in the morning um, so that the timing hits as it should. But but it's not precise. It's not precise. So Susan, do you, can you see the egg on ultrasound? And should a patient come in, like say the day of IUI, to make sure the egg has been released, like for another ultrasound? So no, you cannot see eggs on ultrasound. So what we see on ultrasound are follicles. And follicles are the little fluid-filled sacs that are the houses of the eggs. And at the beginning of your cycle, we see what we call antral follicles. Those are those little bitty black circles. Okay. And then what we're wanting to see as those follicles grow is they're going to, when they get to somewhere between probably 18 to 22 millimeters, that's when we know that the egg within it has the kind of capability of becoming mature and ovulating with that trigger shot. Yes. Another part of the question. I don't remember what that was. Ultrasound. Oh, ultrasound at the time of IUI. I don't historically do an ultrasound at the time of IUI. I know that there are some practices that do realize that every time you get an ultrasound, that generally is going to be another charge. And that. $250 to satisfy curiosity is quite honestly, it's really not necessary, especially if we're using that trigger shot, the trigger shot works like this medicine. It works. Sometimes it works too good. It usually does not, not work. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think the hard thing about an ultrasound too, is it's not like the egg just goes and pops right out of this follicle. It's a slow process. And Sometimes you can see the follicle after the, you know, after the egg's been released with fluid in it or blood in it. And other times you can't see it at all. So it's really not foolproof. And it sometimes it just causes more anxiety than it helps, I think. So I agree. It just, I think it just adds to the cost. I was going to say, we actually do those ultrasounds. And oh, do you really? It's a protocol that long predated me. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's actually been interesting to see it because what I have found is that I don't see a huge correlation between presence or absence of follicles on the day of IUI and how it relates to pregnancy. Like sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're big, sometimes they've already collapsed, sometimes they're somewhere in the middle. And, you know, it's all, it's all kind of bundled in anyway. So it's just because we're kind of 
compulsive, I think, <laughs> more than anything. But you, at your center, you do a lot of research, and I think it's part of that probably data collection is the is is more of the impetus. It is a lot of the drive for everything we do. I mean, we have so much data sitting there; it's it's phenomenal, and it it's part of the reason why we do so much research. But when I look at it from a purely clinical standpoint, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't really make a difference. So speaking of things that don't make a difference, okay, so Susan. <laughs> If I were looking on Dr. Google, when you started off like that, <laughs> if I were, oh, you know the answer to this question. If I were looking on Dr. Google right now, I might be able to turn up some research that suggested that perhaps two is better than one. So, is it better to do back-to-back inseminations, or is it better just to do one? So, when it comes to IUIs involving oral medication or oral plus injectable medications not including the trigger shot. The data really doesn't suggest that doing multiple inseminations is going to improve the chances of pregnancy. What would be the biologic plausibility for that? Why do, why do you think that's the case? Because normally you think more is better, but why do you think it's probably not the case in this situation? Because one well-timed IUI is all you need. <laughs> Sperm can survive for a long time, right? Exactly. I mean, in our patients, we typically say in our, at least in our heterosexual couples, have intercourse the day of trigger, nothing the day after, and then we'll do the IUI. But because we're so good at timing everything and because the trigger shot works, even in our same-sex couples or single women, you really need that one well-timed shot of egg and sperm getting together. And so now I do believe that there is some information on injectable IUI cycles that potentially back-to-back IUIs might increase the chances of successful pregnancy, but I do think it's relatively small studies. Yeah, there was a study that came out a long time ago, probably 15 or 20 years ago, published in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at women who kept track very accurately of when they had intercourse. And I think their urine was measured like every day so that examiners knew exactly when these patients ovulated. And in some cases, not often, but in some cases, they showed that they could have intercourse up to five days Uh before the egg ovulated um, and still be pregnant, but only 24 hours after the egg was released. And so we know that that timing is important, but the sperm can survive for a long time in the female reproductive tract, we believe. So Carrie, one other question that I have, if I was doing internet research and I happen to see that maybe there was some special device or um, sponge or something that keeps sperm up inside my vagina longer. Do you guys do that? Does that help anything? Um, Is it good to keep something in there for a while to keep the sperm closer to the uterus and get it up in the uterine cavity so it won't spill out? Dear listeners, I really wish you could see Susan in my faces as Abby started that question. <laughs> you laugh, but there people used to request that. People ask, people ask. They they definitely ask. I I was just I was looking forward to Carrie's response because <laughs> this is where we get our uncensored part of our show. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what's going to come out of Carrie's mouth sometimes. So when we start talking about putting things up the vagina, that's where we know <laughs> it's going to get interesting. Things, things start to go off the rails. No, there's really no no good data to show that you need to put anything up the vagina besides perhaps a partner's uh, anatomy. 
um, <laughs> the specific IUI catheter to get the sperm up there, uh, the occasional medication to help support things. Um, but no, you don't need anything extra in there. Although I will occasionally have patients come in. The, the most recent iteration of that I, that I have been hearing is, well, should I put the Diva Cup in there to keep everything up? No. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard that one yet. I have heard that. Yeah. And then there's there's another product that's relatively new out there. Of, well, well, should I use this to keep everything in there? And like, well, no, it doesn't really make a difference because some of the studies that they've done where they have radio labeled the sperm and they have tracked it up there. like It's seconds. Yeah. It takes seconds for it to get to where the it's egg is. so fast. So if it's going to get there, it's going to get there. And if it's not, then it's not. And so don't, yeah, just don't go putting things up in places where they ought not to be. Um, and, and let your vagina be in peace. Um, we, we bother it enough. It should have an ally in you. So Susan, every now and then, as I'm talking about IUI, I'll see the husband kind of glaze over in the corner and, you know, I can tell he's not really paying attention. And so I'll get the question sometimes. So is this, how's this different than IVF? Very, 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 very different. So really IUI, we are we are accentuating what is naturally happening in the body. We are we are maximizing that egg and sperm interaction so that there's potentially more sperm that have the opportunity to meet up with the egg for fertilization to happen inside the body. Okay. And so with that comes a lot of unknowns, you know, and um, some of those unknowns are does fertilization happen? Does early implantation happen? The, these are things that we aren't going to know in an IUI cycle um, unless we have a positive pregnancy test. Um, whereas IVF is 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 much more involved um, in that we are taking eggs from inside a woman's body and bringing them outside. And we're putting eggs and sperm together outside the body, growing little embryos for about five to seven days, and then potentially doing testing on embryos and maybe, and then um, transferring an embryo back into the woman's uterus. So, you know, on the invasiveness side, largely different. On the cost side, hugely different. Okay. IVF's the one that everybody thinks about being so expensive and it, and it is expensive. Um, but it's, you know, I, I always think of, I want to do the least invasive, but the most appropriate. And sometimes that means doing something more invasive like IVF, but I, I'm usually a fan of trying something less invasive if it is clinically appropriate. And that's what your doctor is going to help you figure out because by getting on Dr. Google, it, it's really hard to figure out, you know, if I put my HSG, my ovarian reserve testing, my partner semen analysis, my thyroid testing, how old I am, my other medical conditions, um, if I've had pregnancies before, if I've had miscarriages before, putting all those things together, that's where you need to take advantage of the resource of your reproductive endocrinologist. Well, the one, and the one thing I will say about that comparison between IUI and IVF, there's sort of treatments on different ends of the spectrum for male factor infertility. So, you know, if there's kind of a borderline low count, then IUI is probably the way to go initially. If the sperm count is really low and there's nothing we can do to get it up or get it higher than, than IVF with ICSI, where we take one sperm in and put it inside the egg, is probably the treatment. So, but they're very different treatments. And so one last question, Carrie, I have for you. Where in the process of a patient, so a patient's a new patient, she comes into the practice, where in the process of her 
discussions with her physician, would she learn about this? Is this something that we do way down the pike or is this kind of one of the earlier treatments that we do for infertility or? So if we're going to do this treatment, typically patients start to hear about it after we have all the diagnostic testing back. So most of us don't spend a huge amount of time, unless unless we have information from, from the get-go, most of us will get all the diagnostic testing back first because in order to do an IUI, you need to know several data points. You need to know about the sperm, you need to know about the tubes, and so um, as well as ovarian reserve and all the rest of it. And so it's going to be usually the, the first consult visit back after having all of your testing results in. And that's when we just lay out, okay, these are your results. These are the options that are available to you. And so here is what we can do on the most minimal end of the treatment spectrum. Here is what we can do on the most maximal end of the treatment spectrum. This is the pros and the cons of each type of treatment. These are the success rates of each type of treatment. And, and so here's all this information. And um, and like Susan said, most of us will say, yeah, do a couple cycles of IUI if that is appropriate for you. If your doctor is telling you that it is not appropriate for you, or what I, the phrasing that I tend to use with my patients is with your, usually it's with your tubal status, I will lose sleep at night until I know that you have a pregnancy at the uterus, in the uterus. Listen to that because that's an important one because the patients that I worry about the most, like if a guy doesn't have any sperm, it's unfortunate. They're going to waste money and time, but nobody's going to get hurt usually in the long run. If the tubes are questionable, that's an ectopic pregnancy. And that is either a surgical treatment or a medical treatment that's going to make you hold off getting pregnant again for at least three months. And it's usually not quick and easy to diagnose. If it is quick and easy to diagnose an ectopic, that's a problem because that means something bad has happened. And so, um, so usually it's, it's after we have all the testing back that we sit down and say, okay, these are your options, pros and cons. What are you thinking? What do you want to do? All right, let's do it. And one of the, the more important things about IUIs is to not fall into the trap of doing them forever mm -hmm. because for sure by six cycles, if it hasn't worked, then move on. Um, and in many cases, it is appropriate to stop well before six cycles. It just kind of depends on what your story is. So Susan, any last words of wisdom? Um, I think the biggest thing is know that IUI can help a lot of people and it's great in people who are appropriately chosen. And, and I want to kind of reiterate what Carrie was saying about that. If you're starting your fertility journey and someone is not suggesting IUI, understanding the reason behind it. Okay. Is it, as, you know, is it because of your age? Is it because your tubes are not doing well? Is it because sperm counts are low? Like understand the reason behind it. It's not something good or bad against you or your partner. It's just that we're trying to give you your best chances of pregnancy. And so if we think that it's going to give it a good chance, that's great. But if there's a reasonable reason why we don't think so, kind of take that to heart because people get frustrated. They, um, they, there's only so much emotional money in your soul <laughs> that, that, that you have to spend on fertility treatment. And everybody's going to vary, but, but there is a limit for everyone. And, and what breaks all of our hearts is when people get burned out doing something that wasn't necessarily recommended, but they did it because they wanted to do it that way. 
All right. So some good words of wisdom. And maybe I should have started it out this way. If you've been wondering this whole episode, is this the turkey baster method? The answer is yes. But preferably don't say that in front of your fertility doctor because we sort of think of our work as being a a little bit more. uh, (laughs) And technically we don't use turkey basters. And I'm not a good cook. So I don't really even know what turkey basting is anyway. So, um, but on that note, we'll end. And so to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also be sure and subscribe and leave a review for us in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. And if you have any ideas for things you'd like to be covered on our episodes, let us know those as well. We'd love to hear from you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. We can't wait to talk to you next week. And uh, we will not bring in any food-related anything with turkey <laughs> bakers. And uh, you can just imagine what Thanksgiving at all of our houses is like and the jokes that our families make at us. So have a fabulous week. Can't wait to see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.